Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Friday. You made it. The week is over. The weekend is mm, 59 minutes away for me and I think for you too. Um, Although I'm going to start your weekend early with some crazy news, okay? It is always the husband or it is the lover or it is the online stranger that she met before she was murdered. That's what the cops will always do. They will they don't follow the money when it comes to a woman who's found killed. Follow the condoms. I mean, honestly, it is always that. That's what they do. Cops, like homicide 101. Who's the lover? Who's the ex-lover? Who's the online guy that she was dating? That's where they go first, right? It's normal. 34% of the time, they're right. Not so much the other way around. When a guy's found dead, it is not as often his female lover, spouse, ex, etc. But when a woman is found dead, 34% of the time it's somebody who loved her at some point. Think about it. Scott Peterson, Chris Watts, O.J. Simpson, Brian Laundrie. The list just goes on and on and on and on and on. The famous ones. Then there are the not-so-famous ones that become famous, like the one I'm going to talk about tonight. Because in the case of Caitlin Armstrong in Texas, and I'll give it to you any way you want, the yoga mat lady who fled to Costa Rica, the plastic surgery lady who was trying to flee from the cops, the jailhouse stripes lady who tried to escape from her jail guards before her murder trial, that lady with the flaming red hair, the one in the love triangle accused of murdering her romantic rival, that lady's trial, that took a turn today. We've always talked about the love triangle. There's Caitlin with the long red hair. And then there's Colin Strickland in the middle. That's her boyfriend. Then there's Mo Wilson on the far right. And Caitlin and Mo didn't know each other uh, until Colin started dating Mo when he and Caitlin were on a break. So that's fair. Anyway, Caitlin found out about it and prosecutors say she rubbed out Mo. Here's the thing. That guy hasn't said a word. He has been radio silent since Mo Wilson died. And today he was on the stand. So wait until you hear all the things he had to say. Just imagine the tension. Colin Strickland taking the stand. Imagine the tension facing across the courtroom, Caitlin Armstrong. I'm going to talk to you about that in just a moment. If you are counting, we are getting perilously close to the one-year anniversary of the Idaho student murders. We're just, what, 10 days away now? And there is so much for the families, for the students who still go there, for the alumni, for the school, for the, I mean, really the state of Idaho, Moscow in particular, so much for them to process as that, that anniversary looms near. Our Brian Enton had an exclusive conversation with the parents of Kaylee Gonzalez. She's the one up 
uh, right below Maddie Mogan. She's got Maddie on her uh, on her shoulders there. That's Kaylee. And um, they have a lot to say about what happened this week. A house that was supposed to be torn down, but not for the valiant fight of the parents, stayed up. And the police came back to investigate there. And I have uh, some reaction from the parents about that as well. What it's like coming upon this terrible anniversary. And then there's this uh, story out of D.C. that is so, I don't even know what basket to put it in. 12 and a 13-year-old kid decide they're going to carjack a car. 12 and 13, but okay, all right. They pick the wrong car. They pick a U.S. Marshal's car. And what is a U.S. Marshal trained to do? They're trained to stop criminals. And in the darkness, they stop a criminal by shooting. And a 13-year-old is dead. The 12-year-old beat it. His mom turned him in. So here's the question. Can a 12-year-old be charged with murder if his friend died and he didn't pull the trigger? You're going to have to think a lot about that one because grown-ups, that happens. Kids, and ask about that. Let's start in Austin, Texas, though. Ask any cop. It's the spouse, it's the lover, it's the ex. Ask them. That's the first place they go to. Um, Mo Wilson was shot in a real personal way. She was shot in her front door, and she was shot twice in the head. And then for good measure, her killer stood over her for 45 long seconds. Just imagine 45 long seconds over a dying woman shot twice in the head. And then came the third shot, straight through the heart. That was personal. Cops said, that's personal. First we go to the guy, the lover, the ex, the spouse, the online dating. First we go to someone like that, especially since it was personal. So Colin Strickland was suspect number one. And that's what we're finding out. It wasn't Caitlin Armstrong. They thought it was Colin Strickland. And they went full bore to find that guy, professional cyclist. He'd had a fling with Mo. Now, he'd been on a break from Caitlin. Okay. He'd been on a break. He and his girlfriend, Caitlin Armstrong, broke up, and he started seeing Mo, and then they stopped seeing each other. But Caitlin didn't like it. She kept watching. She kept looking. She kept stalking. That's what the prosecutors say. And if you think about it, on the night that Mo Wilson died, the last person she was with was Colin Strickland. Last person she's seen with, he has a fling with her. They maintain a secret relationship, even after Caitlin and Colin get back together. So guess who was on the stand today? You guessed it, Colin Strickland. I just can't imagine him walking into court, just the tension in the air. You know, he moved away and went into hiding after this killing because he was, A, terrified, he said, terrified for his own safety because... His girlfriend, Caitlin Armstrong, was still on the run for like a month and a half. So he moved underground, didn't want to be shot, didn't want to be killed, he said. He, he had to hide from her, he said. So he took the stand today and imagine him walking into court and there's Caitlin with her long red hair dressed in the nice suit, probably craning her neck, or maybe not, and then facing him on the stand as he talked about his tumultuous relationship with her, his jealousy, that, or the jealousy that he saw she had to any girl that he was friends with. And then his history with uh, the victim, with, with Mo. 
I want to get right to uh, News Nation's Alex Capriello, our national correspondent who is in the courtroom. He is joining me live from Austin. Before I get into all of that, because I cannot wait to hear about what that tension was like in the courtroom, you've actually unearthed some pretty jaw-dropping news about what Caitlin Armstrong's defense attorneys are doing right now to offset the worst of the worst that could happen to her in that outcome. So tell me what you found out. Yeah, just recently uncovered this document and also recently confirmed with my source within the courts. It's a defendant's application for community supervision. So get this. This is straight from the document. The defendant, that's Caitlin Armstrong, prays that in the event of a conviction that the sentence be suspended and that she be placed on community supervision. Ashley, as we know, if convicted, she faces up to 99 years of life uh, of time in prison. So basically, this document is hoping that if she is convicted of the murder of Mariah Wilson, that she doesn't go to prison, that she gets that community supervision. And the reason why they say she qualifies for it is because she's never been convicted of a felony in Texas or in any other state. So this is a document that the defense team is submitted to the courts and is hoping that in the event that she is found guilty, that she doesn't go to prison, that she gets her community supervision. Community supervision for uh, murder, execution-style murder. Uh, that's a good one. Um, you know what? Spaghetti at the fridge. Why not? I'm going to ask Matt Murphy about that in a moment because he knows a lot about prosecuting and defending murder. So I'll put that on the note for him to ask him about that. But good job, Alex. Okay, so let me ask you about the tension in the courtroom. Whenever you have a defendant in a love triangle and one prong of that triangle is killed and that other prong comes in to testify, you can like cut the tension with a knife. So walk me through what that moment was like. Yeah, I mean, every single time that the prosecution calls its next witness, everyone cranes their neck to hear who it's going to be. And there was a literal gasp in the room when Colin Strickland was called because this obviously is the key witness everyone wants to hear about. The third part of this love triangle, the person who knows all in terms of his relationship with Caitlin Armstrong and what he called it to be tumultuous, but then also his romantic relationship with Mariah Wilson, even if it was only for one week. And so, yes, it was a very tense. Uh, everyone in that courtroom hanging on to every single word, including the jury. They're paying very close attention to what Colin Strickland has to say and whether or not they I believe he's credible. And uh, in case you're wondering what Colin Strickland himself was like up on that stand, I got to tell you, it looked really painful for him to be up there. He was uh, very sad. He seemed very tired, exhausted almost. Uh, during the moments where he was recounting his memories from May 11th, he had his eyes closed the entire time. He was barely speaking above a whisper. Several times, the court reporter had to say, hey, I need you to speak up. I can't even keep track of what you're saying here. So it just really seemed like he was in a very difficult moment in his memories and in his recollections of that night and about what he had gotten himself into with both Caitlin Armstrong and this professional cyclist, Mo, Wil Mo Wilson. Well, it sure sounds like he wasn't going to hold back, though, and try to protect his uh, wealth. I, I think it's fair to say former girlfriend, you know, Caitlin Armstrong, who's facing murder, um, because it sounded like he was very forthcoming about the things that Caitlin uh, did. She apparently had full right. control of his passwords and his uh, his logins and his email communications and text messages. Were they intimating that basically... Um, Caitlin Armstrong knew every single communication that Colin Strickland ever had with the poor murder victim, Mo, Mo Wilson. 
Yeah, at some point in their relationship, Kalen Armstrong took over the managing aspect of his business, right? He was a professional cyclist who had sponsors and he was doing videos for other cyclists and he just had a lot of his, he had his hands in a lot of other activities. And so Caitlin Armstrong took over that part of the business. And so because of that, she had access to his text messages and his passwords and his passcodes and his bank accounts and his bank statements. And so really, uh, it seems as if she had a tight grip on everything that he was doing. And even if he thought he was being sneaky uh, when communicating with Mo or with others, changing her, her name in his phone book or sending text messages and deleting them later on, it's almost the prosecution's painting a picture as if she was really looking at it all and keeping uh, a mental log in her head. And at times, in some of the stories we heard today, she was confronting him about it, uh, you know, a different relationship with a different woman in Colorado. She had seen some semi-nude, risque pictures that she had sent to Colin, and she had sent that on to Colin saying, hey, I know what you're up to. So really, it seems as if Caitlin Armstrong really knew a lot more uh, than she was letting on, and Colin really was none the wiser. Well, the, I was so curious about one piece of testimony today. Uh, Colin on the stand basically brought back to life that last date. And I, I don't know if we can call it a date, but we always heard that Mo Wilson had been out swimming with Colin Strickland, who now she considered her friend. Um, but now we know a lot more about it. Like there's video, there's surveillance. That There's even a moment where it looks like that Caitlin might have actually been driving by and spying on them like tell me what all that was about what happened at that pool date yeah so this really came from colin strickland's testimony and again he was very quiet closing his eyes as he tried to recollect it all and a lot of his testimony was confirmed by the video as you mentioned right so um in the hours before mo wilson's body was found he had picked her up and taken her to a very uh, fun and famous pool here in Austin, Texas called Deep Eddy. It was more than 100 degrees outside, very hot summer day. They went swimming. They had some food and some drinks at the pool bar, the bar that's right next to the Deep Eddy pool. That's all captured on video surveillance, them having their alcoholic beverages, chilling out, eating food. Cut to a different camera nearby the Deep Eddy pool, and you do see a black Jeep with the bike rack, similar to to the Jeep that we've been seeing in all the other video surveillance footage, pass by. Uh, at the same time, we know that Caitlin was desperately trying to get a hold of Colin. She was calling him, and he was ignoring the calls. She was texting him, and he was ignoring the texts. Uh, fast forward, Colin now takes Mo Wilson back to her friend Caitlin Cash's apartment. He watches her go up the stairs. He drives away. Video surveillance from that point on sees that black Jeep pull up 15 feet from the steps of Caitlin Cash's apartment. And we now know from other video surveillance that just a short time later, three gunshots ring out. Just unbelievable, just knowing now what had happened in those moments leading up to the murder. Like, just spectacular color coming from the stand today from Colin Strickland himself. All right, um, Alex Capriello, thank you for that. Appreciate it. I want to bring in Matt Murphy now. Uh, Matt is a criminal defense attorney and a former homicide prosecutor. So Matt is the perfect person to ask about what um, Alex Capriello just was able to unearth. And, and I don't know that I had heard of a defense application for community supervision before. But can you disabuse me of the notion that she could be convicted of a murder and get community supervision? Yes, I can disabuse you of that right now. So okay. no, don't worry, Thank she's you. not getting it. This judge has done everything right so far. The, the ruling she made so far regarding the evidence is spot on. 
and she's not gonna she's not gonna release her. There's a there's a a section in the in the code that says you can apply for probation. Every judge has the option to do that in any murder case, believe it or not, across America. They never do it, and there's no way this judge is going to let that happen. So don't worry. Um, but today was fascinating, actually. The, the information that came out on the stand, and by the way, I spent 17 years in homicide, and a lot of those are domestic violence cases or love triangles. I've never heard anybody say, follow the condoms before. So kudos to you, because you're exactly right. Um, it is when it right? comes it's to... true. Crime, no, it's totally true. When it comes to crimes like this involving love or or passion um so oftentimes it's not based on money it is based on jealousy rage um some of the oldest motives for murder that have ever existed and people have been doing this in love triangles they've been killing each other for thousands of years this young woman caitlin armstrong just left a trail of evidence so you've got you have forensic evidence regarding the expanded shell casings which we haven't touched on yet which is going to be incredibly damning in opening statements for the very first time from the prosecution, we learned that they actually recovered DNA from Mo Wilson's bicycle um, that's consistent, they said. We don't know what the numbers are yet, but consistent with Caitlin Armstrong. And as we know, that is incredibly damning evidence. But as you mentioned, we've yeah, also got... Because you know what, Matt? It, it's really important that people know that Mo and Caitlin are not friends. Uh, Caitlin had apparently, according to this testimony today from Colin, had like reached out to Mo, a stranger, and started to harass her uh, as the the love interest of of her girl of his of her boyfriend. So it is important to note that they don't have a relationship. They would not be sharing a bike. Uh, so if her DNA is on that bike, it, it it would be odd. But I do want to go back to something you just said: that the shell casings. Because today, Colin Strickland on the stand said something about he and Caitlin living together um, had bought guns together. They had bought two guns together. Now, I started the show by saying they focused on Colin Strickland, thinking he was the killer. But he has rock-solid alibis. Still, the fact that they bought those guns together, and if the shell casings match those guns, doesn't that give the defense something to work with? Gives them something to work with, but there's another, uh, there's another fascinating detail. Number one... There's video camera footage showing him riding his, riding away on his motorcycle that's unrelated to the to the camera footage that shows the the black Jeep driving around at the same time as the murder, which is also incredibly damning. So his alibi is really good. But when the police entered the home and originally told him that she'd been murdered, and they're they're thinking that he is a prime suspect, in the background, according to the, to what was described today, there was there was Caitlin Armstrong and she had no reaction. So he responded like an innocent person would respond. He appeared shocked. He, he couldn't believe it. That, like it, it appeared that he was totally innocent. Meanwhile, she's in the background and she, she does not react at all. And that's a detail that the jury will not miss. A lot of times jur- murder oh, cases. But Matt, um, Matt I, I just hope it's on video because it's one thing for a cop to talk about it on the stand. But if it's on a body cam and they can see it for themselves, that really can sink you. I have to leave it there. But can you come back? Because, you know, this... This case is supposed to go on for a couple of weeks. I couldn't believe that. I thought it'd be a month or two. But it's only a couple of weeks, so they're going to like jam us full of evidence um, pretty quickly every day. Can you come back and talk a little bit more I about would, it? I would love to, actually. I would love to be on your show talking about this case. So thank you for having Fantastic. me. Fantastic. Matt Murphy, you're perfect for this as the homicide uh, prosecutor. So thank you for the insight. And thank you for helping me get off the ledge on the community supervision. That one got a laugh. Um, okay. So, Matt, thank you. I got a quick update as well for our viewers here. And it's actually good news. It's a major story that we've been following pretty closely for a couple of weeks now. Uh, do you remember those four guys who escaped from the jail in central Georgia? 
We've been showing you this grid of fellas. They jumped out a window. They cut through a fence. They actually chiseled through the wall um, mid-October. One of them was found and recaptured last week. And today, Shazam, got another one. They caught a second escapee. They put him back in handcuffs. Uh, police apparently tracking down Mark Carey Anderson to a high-rise apartment in Atlanta. He didn't go too far. Got him at about 3 o'clock this afternoon. So, guys, we got the two in the middle. It's uh, Jennifer Barnwell and Joey Fournier still out there tonight, but we're keeping score, so we'll let you know. Up next, has it really been one entire year since those four kids were murdered in that off-campus house in Moscow, Idaho? That horrible anniversary is just a couple of days away, and for some of us, it sort of feels like it happened yesterday. But for others, like the mother of Kaylee Gonzalez, the father, Kaylee Gonzalez, time really has just stood still for them. I've only been up to Kaylee's room. I mean, it's right up there, right at the top of the stairs. I've only been up there twice. And neither time was for any amount of time. It was like in and out. Whoops, oops, in and out. Christy and Steve Gonzalez, Kaylee's mom and dad, talking exclusively to our Brian Enton. Much more from his interview with this family when Brian checks in from Idaho next. Ten days from now is November 13th, and that is one year ago. It is the date when the world came to a halt for a university town in Idaho. But the world really just stopped completely, just changed forever for the families of four students there. Their parents had shipped them off to college. But these four kids were savagely murdered within just a few months of school starting. And the house was just off campus. It is still right there, just off campus, boarded up like a frightening scar 1122 King Road, the school, the prosecutors, even the defense, wanted the house torn down as soon as possible. But some of the families didn't, and they fought it, and it's a good thing they did, because this week, prosecutors and the FBI were back there, inside, clipboards in hand. News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton sat down with the parents of Kaylee Gonzalez, a victim of that crime. Ashley, this has obviously been a difficult time for the victims' families in Idaho, the Goncalves family uh, included. Uh, they say it's, it's difficult to grieve when the court process is ongoing and frustrating for them because it's been uh, so delayed. Uh, they did have a bit of a victory, though, they feel. You remember they fought and they fought to keep the house where the murders happened standing. The University of Idaho wanted to tear the house down. The Goncalves family fought it. Uh, the house ultimately was not torn down, and it turns out the FBI has now gone back out to the house. We reported on it this week. Uh, they went back out to the house to do 3D imaging. Uh, I spoke to uh, the Goncalveses about that, uh, and also uh, just about the court process uh, and what they want to see happen in general. I knew in my heart what was best for those girls and, that, and Ethan. I knew what was best was to keep that around until they did more. And uh, there'll be a point when I'll be like, you know what, let it go, let it go. And, and our agenda of keeping it around isn't because, well, you know, oh, it's gonna be so sad when it's torn down. I mean, that is gonna be sad to me. And people think, how can that like tear it down? And it's just like, look, 
Like my daughter lived a happy life there. Yes, she was murdered there, ultimately murdered. But that was this much time, you know. She, we have pictures of them in the house. When that house goes, it's going to be hard. I, I, I wouldn't. I don't want to go in it. I, I've never even been to the house. I've never drove by it. I don't want to. But it's still going to be when they're like that house is gone. It is going to be very emotional for me. And but that wasn't why the emotional side of things. It was strictly like, is this going to be? Is this good for the? Prosecution is as good for the case. If he pled guilty and said, I'll plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence, have you thought about that? Yeah, I don't want that because I do know I studied the criminal system and the difference between life in prison, even if it's 20, 30 years, he's 23 hours locked up. He doesn't get to do what B, what is it, BTK? BTK killer? PTK. Or whatever. BTK. We've, we've found out that he uh, writes papers for other prisoners and gets treated really well because he's intelligent and he's able to help other prisoners get uh, preferal treatment through the legal system. Uh, we don't want that type of behavior to happen in our case where he has influence outside of this event. So that's been a hard one, though. I mean, we he could write a book. He can do lot. things. Idaho doesn't have a law in particular that protects against that. The hard thing with this, that question, honestly, is that's where you forget. And I don't know how it's possible, but you forget that other there's three other families involved here. We're not the only ones. You know, it's not just I'm like, this is not a one, you know, band, one crime fits know? all. This is. Right. This isn't just our, our daughter. Right. Some and might I know not that, want to go through the, the trial. I know some of the other families definitely would be, yes, like, let's go. Where do I sign? And I understand that 100%. 100% I understand that. But you know what? Ultimately, it's not our, our call. I mean, they might ask us our opinion like they did on the death penalty. And, and we'll give it. But just because, you know, our opinion is yay or nay doesn't mean that, you know, that's what we get. The Goncalves parents have said that they are for the death penalty in the Brian Koberger case. Uh, but again, it's just frustrating for them how long all of this is taking. They have to take vacation days and plan their whole life uh, with work around when these court hearings happen. And many times the hearings pop up at the last minute. This all while they continue uh, to try and grieve for Christy, Kaylee's mom. Uh, she says uh, that it's difficult for her to go through Kaylee's things uh, and to go into her bedroom. But I've only been up to Kaylee's room. I mean, it's right up there right at the top of the stairs I've only been up there twice and neither time was for any amount of time it was like in and out whoops oops in and out that's all we have that is it you know and it's just um it's just real it's just so real sometimes and it's just the worst that somebody could do this to somebody's family. So many families. The Goncalves family really uh, is just so strong despite everything that they've been through. Obviously, this is an especially difficult time with the one-year mark of the murders coming up on November 13th. Ashley. Brian Enton out in um, Idaho for us. What a great interview. Um, really hard to imagine what it would be like if you were the parent of a murdered child. Would you spend time in your child's bedroom? Everybody reacts differently. I was very surprised to hear that from Christy Gonzalez. You know, uh, Kaylee would have been 22 years old today, 
or she alive? Just something to think about. All right, so we're on countdown, and we'll continue to cover this on the way to the anniversary. Still to come, though, something very weird happened in a Utah courtroom. Uh, Corey Richens went before a judge. She's that Utah mom that wrote the children's book about grief after police say she poisoned their dad. Uh, she wanted her case thrown out. So that's what she was asking the judge. But on the other side of the courtroom, the prosecutors had a few requests of their own. They want her banned from any contact with her own family. Uh, the judge, however, uh, had something to say. He wanted both sides to remember Gwyneth Paltrow. You heard that right, Gwyneth Paltrow. This is all gonna make sense in just a couple minutes. Everybody knows that the best way to beat a murder rap is to never go to trial for it in the first place, right? Which explains why so many defendants look for every reason in the book to get their charges thrown out. Textbook. Corey Richens is the latest case in point. She is that uh, wife and mom from Utah who's accused of killing her husband with fentanyl and then just going ahead and writing a children's book about grief to make it easier on her kids. She was in court today over something else that she wrote while in jail that has come to be known as the Walk the Dog Letter. Uh, that is a bizarre six-page handwritten memo to Richen's mom that authorities say they found inside a book tucked away inside her cell. And it appears to instruct Richen's mom and family members to claim falsely that her dead husband, Eric, got the drugs that killed him from Mexico, himself. The prosecutors say that Corey bought the drugs from their housekeeper and put them in Eric's Moscow mule in March of last year, killing him. Corey says she's got a perfectly good excuse for that letter being tucked away in her cell. She says it is not a letter at all. It is an excerpt from a novel that she's writing, loosely based on her life. Prosecutors are having none of it. They say it's evidence of witness tampering and that Richens should be banned from having any further contact with any of her family members. And the judge made some decisions by day's end. Uh, judge said the murder charge still stands. Sorry, not going to be tossed out. You're headed to trial. Um, but he did hand a win to Corey Richens, saying that she can still stay in touch with her family. And as for her claims that the state has poisoned the jury pool, this is where it got weird. The judge said if Gwyneth Paltrow can get an impartial jury in his county, then Corey Richens can too. I always say it's an OJ thing. If he can get a trial, anybody can. But joining me now is Greg Scordis. He is a spokesperson for Eric Richens' family. Eric is, of course, the victim in this case. Greg, it's good to see you again. Thank you for doing this. And you're very kind to um, help the family out um, by doing these appearances. Are they relieved that the judge decided that the case would go forward? She would not get her wish to have the, um, the charge thrown out? I think relieved is is a good word, Ashley, but I, I don't know that anyone was particularly worried about that motion. Uh, the defense filed a motion asking that the case be thrown out because the, the state, the prosecution, had disclosed the walk the dog letter that you just talked about, and they disclosed that in a motion, as you also just talked about, to have her 
uh, not be able to communicate with others on the outside because they felt that the letter was evidence of witness tampering or at least attempting to coach a witness. So the prosecution said, hey, you know, we think she shouldn't communicate. The judge says, no, she can communicate with what she wants, with who she wants. The defense said, hey, they've leaked this letter. The judge says, well, she shouldn't have written the letter. And you're not you're not messing up the jury pool because exactly what you just said, Ashley, if Gwyneth Paltrow can get a fair trial in Summit County, then then probably anybody can. Or OJ or Beretta or you name it, Michael Jackson, everybody. I mean, um, so I would assume that the family is upset that um, she gets to maintain contact with her family after all of this. I, again, that probably wasn't a surprise. I mean, she has the right to communicate with her family. She just can't communicate with them in the way that she's alleged to have here, which is to encourage and, and try to get someone to testify falsely. Because the letter, if you read it closely, and, and it, doesn't take a, it doesn't take rocket scientists to say that she was really trying to get her brother to say what you just said, which is that Eric was going down to Mexico and buying uh, drugs when everyone knows that wasn't true, but it would have provided a defense to the murder case. You know, I always say, uh, go ahead, chat away, uh, write what you want, because every single thing you say and scribble is uh, is monitored and it can be evidence used against you. So I'm always a fan of saying, open up the spigots uh, of communication. We might get something uh, good. But uh, so let me ask you this. Um, families, you know, in any courtroom, especially one that is this tragic, there's usually a line down the middle with those who are um, supporting the defendant, uh, the, her family would be behind her. And then those who have the victim and their family, they're behind the prosecutors. And it can be very tense between families. What's it like in that courtroom? It's exactly what you just described. I mean, there's an incredible tension. There are a lot of just viewers also, though. They're just people, as you as you know, for what you do for a living, that people just cover these things. People just show up. Uh, onlookers just come. They want to watch. So there are a lot of family members from both sides. There seem to be somewhat sequestered from one another in the courtroom. But there are a lot of other people there that are just watching. And so, so far, it's not a big courtroom by any means. Uh, so far, there have been no uh, outbreaks or any problems at all. I think the bailiffs are good about letting one family leave the courtroom first after the hearing is over and then give them a few minutes to get out to the parking lot before the other family leaves. So the tension is there, the, the sort of the looks, maybe the glares, as you might expect, are going on. But uh, so far, there's uh, really people have been very mature about the whole process. It is a very dramatic reality getting into a courtroom like that. Uh, Greg Scordis, as always, thank you so much for helping us to sort of think through this and giving us the perspective from Eric's family. We'll see you again soon. You bet. All right, still to come after this break, two kids, just 12 and 13. First of all, just let that sink in. Um, they attempt to do something very grown up, a crime, and one of them is shot dead in the process. The other one is turned in by his own mom. But could that 12-year-old, turned in by mom, be jailed for life for the death of his friend, even though he didn't pull the trigger? Does that mom have any regrets? That's next. Last Saturday night, a couple of young kids, and I mean young, one was 12, the other 13, made a terrible decision. 
in Washington, D.C. They chose, for whatever reason, to commit a carjacking. And police say surveillance video caught the 13-year-old approaching from the passenger side, the 12-year-old over at the driver's side. Both kids had their hands on their waistbands, like mimicking that they were packing heat. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't, don't know. But boy, did they pick the wrong car. Because sitting in the passenger seat was an off-duty security officer with the U.S. Marshals. The officer leapt from the car, fatally shot the suspect on the passenger side. It was a 13-year-old. That 13-year-old was killed. He's since been identified as Bernard Tony Jr. Looks like a baby. The 12-year-old on the driver's side took off running. Again, caught on surveillance video. And his mom saw the video and then turned him into the police. And the court documents show that that boy has a history of serious behavioral issues and anger problems. He's now locked up in a juvenile facility charged with armed carjacking. But it could get worse. I want to bring in criminal defense attorney Dwayne Cates to answer a couple questions. Dwayne, thanks for, for being on. First of all, what is the worst thing that can happen to a 12-year-old, 12-year-old uh, in the juvenile system, if that's where he stays, with an armed carjacking charge? Well, a 12-year-old, you know, they, they've kind of set the limit at 15 in D.C., the legislature did. So it's going to be almost impossible to transfer him to criminal court, to adult court. So the worst that can happen to him if he gets convicted of even murder is that he stays in a juvenile facility until he's 21 years old. So that leads me to my next question. Um, well, first of all, you said it's almost impossible. Are you saying it is impossible? Have you ever seen a 12-year-old elevated to adult court anywhere? I have. In, in Arizona, it can happen. You have to have a juvenile transfer hearing where you have a big proceeding in front of a judge. A judge has to make that decision. But from what I've read in D.C., uh, the cutoff is 15. If, if, if you're not 15 years old, they can't move you to adult court. Okay. Um, so this is the scenario most people just cannot understand if they don't work within um, the legal profession. And it is crazy. But this 12-year-old is at the driver's side. The 13-year-old's at the passenger's side. The, the, the carjacking victim gets out and shoots the 13-year-old. The 12-year-old didn't shoot anything. He just took off. But he, under the statute of felony murder, was in the commission of a felony when a death resulted and thereby, under the law, could be charged with felony murder. I just don't know if you can do that with a 12-year-old in juvie. Can you? Well, you can charge him with felony murder, but the outcome's going to be the same. He'll get out when he's 21. You know, felony murder, you have to be in the commission of a serious or dangerous felony uh, at the time that somebody dies, which he was. He fits the definition of felony murder. But again, I don't think because he's 12 years old, they're going to do that. Okay, so no weapons were found, either at the scene of the crime or in the boy's bedroom. Does that make any difference, given the fact that the charge is armed carjacking well sometimes you can be car charged with armed carjacking if you have a fake weapon pretend that you have a weapon you know you stick your finger underneath your coat the, the the main component of it is that you put the victim in fear for their life and if you put the victim in fear for his life which he obviously did because the victim the victim the, the carjack victim shot one of them he was in fear for his life so I believe they could probably make that stick, even though there was no actual weapon found. 
I only have one question left, but, I, but I'm short on time, so we'll make this quick. The, the dead boy, the 13-year-old, had been suspected in a number of previous carjackings. Can the 12-year-old bring that in and in his defense say something like, look, I'm 12, I, I looked up to him, I was enticed. Can, can any of that factor into his defense? Oh, it all will. It's what's called mitigation. And he can have a mitigation person come in and say, hey, you know, I'm not, this guy, was, I was under the influence of this older kid who drugged me down the wrong path and, and, and use all of that. But again, the most likely outcome is he's going to be in prison until he's 21. 21. I mean, that's a, a, I've got shoes that are older than that period of time where he'll be incarcerated. <laughs> um, Dwayne Cates, yeah. So thank you for being on with me. Sorry about this really sad topic, but we'll have you back. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Dwayne Cates joining us live. Coming up, a superstar caught for speeding and gives the cop the oldest excuse in the book. And it's all captured on body cam. But this isn't just any superstar. This is a superstar who's been making huge headlines lately for doing some very weird things on camera. Uh, The full story next. Britney Spears is making headlines today, and this time it is not for something salacious from the memoir she just dropped. It is true. The book, called The Woman in Me, has sold more than a million copies in the U.S. alone in just its very first week. But today's headline has to do with the police instead. A California highway patrolman pulled Britney over for a traffic violation, and the stop was all caught on body cam. He tells her that she crossed a double yellow while speeding. And get this, it is the second time that the very same officer has pulled her over in less than a month. And for the second time, Britney Spears told the officer she did not have her driver's license on her. This time saying that she was speeding because she had to TT. Yeah, yeah, pass on the double yellows. You can't do that. I'm so sorry. Do you have your license? I'm trying to shade you. Hold on. My security and my house has my passenger license. Okay. 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 I just really Mexico. Okay. You haven't gotten your license yet? I stopped you a few weeks ago and you're I'm supposed so to get sorry. your license. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, do you know you can't pass on the double yellows? Okay, yeah, the reason for that is there's private driveways, so, um, so people are pulling in and out. Okay, um, do you have any, like, photo ID or anything with your name on it? I, I know who you are, but, um, okay, do you have any questions? Okay, uh, make sure everything's correct. And then here you go, um, you're free to go, just drive safely, okay? Brittany's excuse for not having her driver's license is that her bodyguards carry her license and her passport for her. She said she was just coming back, I think at one point from Mexico and then from French Polynesia, all in the same excuse. But this time the cop was having none of it. He gave her a break the first time, and this time he's like, no, you're getting tickets. Carry your license, for heaven's sake. The rest of us mere mortals, we do. It's important.